The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture today comes from Philemon 8 through 18. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother." especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that on my account. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Becky. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. And let me just say uh, what a real treat and honor it is to be here with you today. Thank you, Pastor Micah. Thank you, Stacy, for uh, inviting me here to be a part of this service. And, and I got to say, this is now uh, at least the third time which I've been invited here to participate in an outdoor service. They call me Mr. Blue Skies, so... My apologies. I don't know how this is happening, but I'm going to start off by confessing to you a failure of mine in parenting. And I'm telling you this from a vulnerable place, so so have pity on me. I made an error early on in my parenting journey. I've been trying to fix it ever since. And whether or not you have children, this is applicable to you. Whether you ever deal with children at all, please heed this advice and take note of my error. I share this with you so perhaps that you might avoid the same pitfalls. Early on, a part of my parenting involved bribery. It involved bribery. And my wife got after me right from day one about this. It was a quick fix though. It worked. It worked. But from the moment I did this the first time, I established precedent. And I remember telling one of my kids who was in the first grade at the time, they were moaning over the fact that they were having to read all these books before the end of the school year. It was first grade. And I told them, hey, listen, if you do this well, if you finish strong, I'll give you a prize. I'll give you a prize for finishing your first grade year strong. You're going to say, Dad, what kind of prize? I said, a big one. How big? And I really didn't think it through, but, but I wanted to make sure he was motivated, so I pulled it out of the air. A new bicycle. And across the room, I can see my wife's jaw drop to the floor because she had used these motivation tactics herself, but her prizes were like, I will give you a cookie or a quarter. I came in pretty hot with a bicycle. And from that moment, I set a precedent. Do you know my oldest son now is about to finish 10th grade and he said to me just the other day, you know how we get prizes for finishing the school year? I said, no. And so I explained to my kids, this is your job. 
right? It's, it's your job to do well in school and help out around the house, not because you get a job, not because you get a prize, because it's your job. And, and I also tell them, when I go out to the yard, for example, and I, and I go cut the grass, I don't get paid for that. No one gives me $10 to cut the grass. My, my wife will go out there too and she'll plant flowers and make everything look really lovely. And no one is paying us to do any of that. In fact, it costs us something to do it. We go out there of our own free will and we labor in the yard without expectation of repayment or prize. Why do we do that? We're not doing it because someone told us to do it. So why are we doing it? It could be any number of reasons to tell you the truth. We don't want our neighbors to get mad at us or, or we don't want the property value to decrease or maybe, just maybe, maybe, we actually enjoy doing it. We do it because we want to do it. But guess what? When I was a kid, my dad told me to cut the grass. And, and when I cut the grass back then, I, it wasn't because I enjoyed it. What was my sole reason for cutting the grass back then? Because I was told to do it. I didn't have a choice in the matter, really. And here's the point. Somewhere along the way between my 12-year-old my self and, and, and where I am today, somewhere in my adulthood, my motivation changed. I'm not cutting the grass anymore because now I earn allowance or even because my dad told me to. I have a whole new set of reasons and motivations. And one of those reasons might just be for the joy of doing it. Every analogy breaks down to a point, I know. And the truth is sometimes it's a real pain to cut the grass. I get it. I get it. But the fact remains my motivation for doing it comes from somewhere else now. I have a new center. I have a new true north when it comes to doing things like maintaining the household. And it's no longer because it's just because of what I've been told to do. As we take another look at Paul's letter to Philemon this week, we, we just read for you a moment ago, Picking up at verse 8, and this letter, according to our modern Bible, is only 25 verses in its entirety. And it takes getting into verse 8 before Paul gets around to asking Philemon what he wants to ask him. And so what is it that he's asking him? Onesimus. Yes, I'm sure Philemon remembers Onesimus, a bondservant, a slave. Philemon had claim on Onesimus, and the exact nature of that claim we're not told, but what we do know is Onesimus is le left without permission from the one who had claim on him. And presumably, he might even stolen something when he left Philemon's presence. And then somehow, some way, Onesimus finds himself perhaps in the very same prison cell as the Apostle Paul. Now, there's not universal agreement from the scholars on exactly how Onesimus and Paul crossed paths. Perhaps Onesimus on the run was captured and put in prison. Perhaps Onesimus intentionally sought out the Apostle Paul by means of helping his cause. We just don't know. But the Lord saw fit to put them together, Onesimus and Paul. And in so doing, Onesimus became a child of the living God no longer a slave to sin, but free in Christ. A man of little resource now for him has been secured a permanent place at the king's table. Formerly, we just read, he was useless to you. Formerly, he was useless to you, Philemon. The language there suggests a loss. He was of no profit to you, Philemon, perhaps, perhaps because he had stolen something, or perhaps it was just that Philemon lost someone on which he made claim. But Paul says he is indeed useful to me and you. 
He's, he's now indeed profitable to both me and you. He ministers to me and you, Philemon. You see, Paul is setting the, setting the stage for his request here. What you need to understand, Philemon, is that what I'm asking you to do isn't just of benefit to Onesimus. It's not just of benefit to Onesimus and me. It's of benefit to you, to me, to Onesimus, to the whole church. And so what we have here in this short letter from Paul to Philemon is a lesson on becoming a new creation in Christ. And the sanctification, the process of being made holy that accompanies becoming a new creation. So, so there are two main headings that I want to talk to you today about. A new creation and our sanctification. A new creation and our sanctification. Paul's explicit to requ uh, request to Philemon was an audacious one. It was certainly not the norm for the time. He, he asked Philemon to not only release his claim on Onesimus, but he asked Philemon to then send him back to Paul. It's believed that perhaps Onesimus was the very one delivering the letter back to the church and back to Philemon. Release your claim on him, Philemon, and send him back to me. And isn't it interesting the way Paul frames his request? Have you ever heard someone say, not to sound rude, but that is the universal cue that you are about to hear something really, really rude. And at first glance, it sounds like Paul is doing something similar. He says, I'm bold enough to command you to do what is required. In other words, not to sound like an apostle, not to sound like an apostle, Philemon, but I am an apostle. You see, to be an apostle in terms of authority in the church, it's fair to say there isn't a greater authority. The concept of the apostle doesn't find its origin in the Bible. In the ancient times, even before the first century, a king, by his own royal authority, would grant apostleship to the one that he would designate. And only the king could grant this authority, and he had to do so in person. And so, so when he would send the apostle out to be his representative, he would then go to speak to another nation or a kingdom and deliver this royal message of the king. And it was expected that the apostle's words would be received with the full weight and authority of the king. It's as if the king himself were there speaking. There was no distinction made between the apostle's words and the king's words. In the same manner, when Christ granted apostolic authority, he did so personally. He granted himself in person, he granted it to them. And when he sent his apostles out, the words carried with them, the full weight of Christ's words, he carried with them. It was the same authority the, the Lord granted the prophets in the Old Testament. When the prophet of the Old Testament said, thus saith the Lord, they weren't giving their own take on things. They were delivering the very words of God, nothing less. So you see, Paul, as an apostle, carried with him in terms of authority, the full weight of Christ's authority. When he speaks to the church, it's as if Christ himself were speaking to the church. And so when Paul gives Philemon a subtle reminder you know who I am, right? I could, I could command you to do what you ought to do, Philemon. I could do that. I have that authority, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Why? Why wouldn't Paul just tell him what to do? Do the right thing, Philemon, because I said so. The book of Philemon, believe it or not, is the third shortest book in the Bible by word count. 335 words. The shortest book is 3 John at 219 words. But the book of Philemon could have been a lot shorter. Dear Philemon, release your claim on Onesimus and send him back to me because I said so. It's the right thing to do. Sincerely, Paul, 25 words. 
25 words by my count. Philemon, I could just command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm asking you to remember that you, Philemon, you have a new center. You have a new motivation for doing the things you do. Philemon, I can just command you to do this because I'm an apostle of Christ, but it's not the apostle asking you to do this. It's Paul, prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm not coming to you from a place of strength, though I do have that. I'm coming to you from a place of weakness, humility. I'm willingly and freely setting aside my rightful claim on you, Philemon. I'm releasing that claim. For what reason? For the sake of love. Not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm operating from a new center. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but but out of your own accord. How does that happen? Speaking of, of mowing the lawn, it was just two weeks ago when I was out cutting the grass and I had just finished cutting the backyard and I was on my way up to do the front yard when, when one of my boys came up to me and said, I'll do the front yard for you. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I stood there shocked for a moment and I just stared at him. And I didn't say it out loud, but I thought to myself, who are you? What have you done with my son? You, you look just like him. But you see, I shouldn't be surprised by things like this. He's growing up, he's maturing, and maybe some of the things that his mother and I repeat to him over and over and over, maybe they're actually starting to sink in. Perhaps, yes, maybe by the grace of God, he too is operating from a new center. So, so what is this new center? What is this reorienting of our lives that flips things on their heads and gets us to operate in ways that most of the time are countercultural? Not only that, it even goes against the very instincts that are embedded deep down inside of us. The instincts that tells us to assert ourselves, grab what we can while we can, because, because it, what causes Paul to say, I, I could come to you with authority, but I'm gonna appeal to you from a higher standard, Philemon. I'm gonna ask you to lay down your life. Why would he say yes? Paul is recapitulating a concept that he wrote about at the church in, in, at Corinth just a few years before. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In these verses just before what, what Paul said there, he, he's, he's telling the struggling church that, that if you're a believer in Christ... If you've placed your trust in Christ through his work to make you right before the Father, that means you have died with Christ and you no longer live for yourself. You no longer live for yourself. You have a new center. You're no longer of this world. Your citizenship lies elsewhere. Your sin nature has been nailed to the cross with Christ. It was buried with him just as Christ was raised up by the Father, so we also are raised up. As he tells us in Romans, we are raised up to walk in newness of life. You're a new creation. You are a new creation. Onesimus is a new creation, just like you, Philemon. Paul's language there is very intentional when he speaks about being a new creation. It should conjure up images of the opening pages of the Bible. In the beginning, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void. There was nothing. 
and then God spoke. The whole universe was created, brought forth from nothing. So when Paul talks about you being a new creation, that's what he means. You're completely new creation. He put something in you where there was previously not anything. That means you have impulses to do something where you previously had no impulse before. You have a desire to do good, to do good where, where there was previously no desire to do good things. You have a desire to lay down your life when you previously had no desire to lay down your life. Instead of saying, what can I get from you that I can advance my own cause? Now you say, my life for yours. Paul is saying, Philemon, I don't want to invoke my authority here because I know you know what it means to be a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Onesimus is a new man. He's a new creation. You see, Paul could have appealed to the Deuteronomic law and insist that Onesimus stay with him. He allowed for that in Deuteronomy. On the other hand, the Roman law forbade, forbade you from having a fugitive slave, but, but instead, what does Paul do? He doesn't look to the Mosaic law. He doesn't look to the Roman law. Instead, he makes his appeal to Philemon on the basis of Onesimus's new status. And the new man says, I, I use my authority not as something to wield against you. I set it aside and I give it to you, knowing that you'll do the same, Philemon, because this is who we are in Christ. Philemon, I'm asking you to lay down your claim on Onesimus. He's a new creation. Observe what I've done, Philemon. I'm an apostle, but now a prisoner. Do you know that this is the only letter that we have from Paul where he identifies himself as a prisoner? Normally, he identifies himself as an I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, but he identifies himself here as a prisoner, not as a prisoner of Rome, mind you. A prisoner for Christ Jesus, he says. It's as if Paul is telling Philemon, I've set every claim to anything I had aside. The old man died, the old, the new man is now a prisoner to Christ. I lay my claim to nothing but Christ. But even more, it's not that Paul is simply telling Philemon, hey, do as I do, be like me. I gave it all up, so should you. No, he's really saying my life is patterned after Christ. Your life is patterned after Christ too. Paul is walking in the footsteps of Christ Jesus. We read in Philippians 2 that it was Jesus himself who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He divested himself of every right, every privilege he had being seated next to the Father in the heavens, and he, and he set every claim to anything he had aside, and he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Paul is, is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. He, he's walking in his footsteps, just like Philemon, just like Onesimus. The old man has died, and now the new man lives. Dear friends, can I tell you something? If you've put your trust in Jesus, then you're being conformed to the likeness of Christ right now, right now, right in this moment. You are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. In fact, he's never not doing that. You're walking in his footsteps. The old man has died. The new man has been raised up and is being conformed to his likeness. You begin wanting to be like Christ more and more. You do as he did. And yes, some days are better than others. No doubt about it. But as you're being sanctified, you increasingly gain awareness that this is what the Father is doing in you, making you like his son always, always, now and forever. 
By the time Paul gets to the conclusion of his request, after he's made his appeal, he says this in verse 15, for perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. This sentiment echoes what Joseph told his brothers all the way back in Genesis. Do you remember this story, Genesis? In uh, Genesis, uh, uh, the latter part of, uh, of Genesis, he, he was Joseph. He was, he was trapped by his brothers. And then he was thrown to a, in a, to a pit because of their jealousy of him. And instead of killing him, they decided to sell him off to a band of travelers who took him to Egypt. After he was in Egypt, he found himself in the service of a man named Potiphar. And just when things started to turn around, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of making advances at her. And as a result, he was thrown into prison. And he stays there for years, at least two years in prison for, for not days, not weeks, but for years for something he didn't do. Now, to make a long story short, he, he finally made his way out of prison by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. And in so doing, he saved Egypt from an impending famine. And Pharaoh was so grateful that he made Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. So from that time, from the time that Joseph was kidnapped, he was kidnapped by his brothers at the time he finally was a free and honored man. Some 13 years had passed. What do you suppose Joseph might have done if he ever got the chance to face his brothers again? They stole 13 years of his life. Well, guess what? He did. He did face them again. They came to him desperate, needing relief from the famine, needing mercy. And when Joseph finally came face to face with his brothers, how did he respond? What claim did he have on his brothers? What rights did Joseph have to exercise in the moment? There wasn't a person around who would have objected. He simply said, off with their heads. I mean, they trapped him. They sold him. They were responsible for years of imprisonment. Who would blame him? But instead, what did he do? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That sounds familiar. That sounds like what we just read in Philemon a moment ago. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But I want you to understand something. This isn't just God making lemonade out of lemons. This isn't God just doing his best work with a hand that he's been dealt. This is God's sovereign design unfolding before our guys. And the miracle is sanctification. That's what this is. This is the miracle of sanctification. God reminds us again in Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He is always sanctifying you. He is always conforming you to the image of his son in every circumstance, however miserable we might be in the moment. Whatever sins against us have been committed, he uses those circumstances to make us like Christ. Friends, this tells us that there is hope for the sufferer. Through the mistreatment and injustice that was laid upon Christ, he saved us. The Father was most glorified through the suffering of Christ. He was reconciled to people like you and me through his suffering. And this is the pattern into which you and me are being cast right now. And it's with this understanding that Paul makes his request. Philemon, I know you understand this, but let me say it anyway. If Onesimus is a new creation, then that means he's a brother. He's a beloved brother. 
calls him beloved brother. And you'll notice in the opening of Paul's letter, that's exactly the way that Paul referred to Philemon, beloved brother. It's the same thing. The implication being that Philemon is beloved to Paul, and so Philemon should regard Onesimus as a beloved brother as well, following Paul's model of loving his Christian brothers. Philemon, you're both people have been who have put to death the old man and have been raised in the newness of Christ. You're the same. Whenever we look into the eyes of another Christian, you're looking into the eyes of someone who's being sanctified, just like you. We're not there yet, none of us, but we will be. And when we look into their eyes, you're getting a foretaste of what's to come. You're looking at someone that you're going to spend eternity with. You're looking into the eyes of someone who will have a seat just like yours at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And not only that, but you're going to spend all eternity with the best version possible of that person. The one who's been perfected and conformed to the likeness of Christ. My friend Russ Ramsey, who's the, the pastor of the Cool Springs con congregation, he and I have a, a fake feud. Uh, and we do this for the entertainment of ourselves and others. We engage in this feud. Russ said something really nice to me the other day. He said, I can't wait to spend eternity with the best version of you. And then I realized it was a backhanded compliment. I can't wait to spend eternity with that version of you because I'm quite weary of this version of you, right? We look into each other's eyes and joyfully anticipate what awaits us completion in Christ. We think of the reality that awaits us and we allow that to be reflected in how we live right now. We're reflections of Christ right now. My oldest son is at the age where he seems to be eating around the clock. Just one thing after the other. 16 years old, he can't eat food fast enough. And I hope he's enjoying himself now, right? He doesn't even gain a pound when he does this. In fact, I, can, I can't tell you how many times we've been seated at the dinner table. We're eating food. We're literally putting food in our mouths in that very act. And he's asking us, so what's for dinner tomorrow? Can we just enjoy this meal now? Right? And you know, I think I know where he gets it. We'll be on vacation. We'll be sitting on the beach or somewhere. And in the process of vacationing, my wife is already planning what the next vacation is going to be. She's telling me we're sitting in beach chairs and saying, hey, what about this destination? I'm saying, hey, why don't we enjoy this vacation that we're on right here, right now? Maybe we could do that. But do you know what this is in both cases? This is a joyful anticipation. It's a joyful anticipation. It's so looking forward to what awaits us next that it just comes overflowing out of us. They can't help but anticipate what's next. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ that way? Do you look at them with joyful anticipation, knowing what awaits them in Christ? Do you help them see in such a way that, that moves them one step closer to helping them along in their own sanctification? Do you do that? What if we always looked at each other that way? What if we always looked at each other in such a way that reflected the joy of what we know awaits them? If we always looked at each other that way, would we ever resent one another? Would we ever feel competitive with one another? Would we ever cease to protect one another? Would we ever fail to provide for one another? Would we ever fail to give one another forgiveness? When we look at each other, what if we never sought what we might gain, but what if we always looked at how we could sacrifice ourselves for each other? 
What can I give for your sake? How can I bear your burden right now? What if we all, like Paul said, who was reflecting the character of Christ when he said, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. What better image can we take with us right as we approach the Lord's Supper? When Christ looked at you and me, he didn't tell us pay up. He didn't try to claim what was rightfully owed to him. Instead, he said, whatever they owe, charge it to me. He willingly accepted our debt, the debt of his people, and paid that debt himself. May we do the same for one another. Pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the words you've given us in letters like these. Our, our prayer is simple. Make, make us like your son. Help us to reflect the reality of our hearts, the death of the old man and the newness of life in the new. Thank that you've given us hope in all circumstances and help us to reflect this joyful anticipation to a world that desperately needs it too. We ask this of your sake, for your sake. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. What a word from the Lord this morning. And I, especially that ending point, praise God. Uh, whatever we owe to the Father, Christ says, charge it, charge it to me. I'm Pastor Micah Edmondson. I am delighted to be here uh, at Music Row again and, and in a combined service. The last time I was here, we were hoping and anticipating and thinking about what Koinonia could be. And now, uh, a year and a half later, by God's grace, it's a fully uh, flourishing congregation, and we are delighted to be worshiping with you. And coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's table um, is um, uh, a joyful anticipation of, of, of what is to come. It's the Lord holding out for us today what he plans for us tomorrow. And so it, and so it really excites me, y'all. Uh, let, me, let me do this real quick before I go. I left, I left my script. Can I get my script from you, brother? Because we are doing this a little bit different than we... Uh, normally do it um, at Koinonia, and I want to make sure I stay on track here. Uh, but one thing I want to just present before us and just to um, call our attention to is that I don't know about y'all, but y'all, I'm sick of sin. I should have got some amens on that one. I know I, I am sick of sin. As we thought about, as we thought about the, the horrible events of Buffalo, things like that make me sick of sin. When, I, when we think about the Ukraine, things like that make me sick of sin. The sin that, that, that I do, the sin that's done to others, the sin that's done to me, the, I'm just tired of sin, y'all. I'm just tired of sin. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of suffering. And, and, and when we come to this anticipation, when we come to this meal, what it holds out for us is the reality that sin won't last always that injustice won't last always, that war won't last always, that hate crimes won't last always, that bigotry won't last always, that, 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 that moral blindness won't last always. The Lord is healing us. And, 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 and Lee Eric preached an amazing sermon that had that strong point about the Lord sanctifying us not leaving us in our situation, but doing something about it, doing something tangibly about it. And I know sanctification seems like a painfully slow process, don't it? Amen. 
I don't know how y'all stuff is going, but let me tell you something. When I look, <laughs> when I consider the situation of Micah Edmondson, okay, this thing is growing like a slow growing tree. That's Lord, I just, I want to be done with certain things. But when we come to this table, it is a tangible reminder that the process is real and that the process is tangible. We are here not because we got it together. We are here at this table because we don't have it together, because we need to be cleaned up, because we need some strength. And the Lord is so kind to say to us, I will strengthen you. I will be with you. And I will make sure that you make it to the end. And that's good news, y'all. Good news indeed. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, we're so grateful that the Lord, first of all, we're grateful that the Lord sent you here. Nobody loves you like Jesus does. Nobody wants the best for you like Jesus does. And, uh, but if you don't know him as Savior and Lord, if you're here and you say, well, man, I don't know if I really understand the gospel. I, don't, I haven't really put those things together. Uh, we're grateful that you're here. Um, and, and we ask and invite you to continue to come and to continue to hear the good news of Christ Jesus. But for those of you who are not members of the church and are not following Christ, we, we, we ask that you refrain from partaking of the, of the supper today because we wouldn't want you to say something uh, or, or say something with your mouth and through the proclamation of this, of this supper that you don't really believe in your heart. But uh, like, we love you too much for that. We, we wouldn't want you to, we wouldn't want to lead you in, a, in, a, in an act of hypocrisy. But if you're here and you say, but I do trust in Christ. And, 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 and I, I, my life is, 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 is not what I want it to be, but, but it is sincere. And, and even if you have a mustard seed of faith, this meal is for you. This, is, this, 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 this meal is, is in order to strengthen that mustard seed and grow that mustard seed so that you can grow up into Christ-likeness. So that, so that trouble and sin and sickness and sorrow and all those things as a, as, a, as, a, as a way to hold out for you to say that to you that those things won't last always. I would like for us uh, to stand together.